Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Mean O' Lion Media presents Pregnancy Pearls. Meet Dr. Nicole Plenty, a double board certified OBGYN and high risk pregnancy expert. She's brilliant, well researched, and feisty. Growing tired of seeing complications of pregnancy that could have been prevented, she wanted a way to empower women through knowledge. Because as she says, all doctors aren't created equal. This quest to educate women birthed this podcast, Pregnancy Pearls, with Dr. Plenty. Thanks for listening to Pregnancy Pearls with me, Dr. Nicole Pliny. Today, we're going to talk about how to handle an abnormal finding on ultrasound. So as parents, we want our babies to be as perfect as possible without any structural malformation. But that's not always the case. As maternal fetal medicine specialist, one of my jobs is to make sure that everything on your baby is structurally normal. So you'll get your anatomy scan at somewhere between 18 and 20 weeks. That's a pretty long scan. If you're high risk, if you're low risk, you would have gotten that scan in your OB's office. And then you're sent to someone like me if there's something that's concerning or it's something they couldn't see. As a physician, almost daily, I find an abnormality during an anatomic screen. But I think it's important to gain insight from a parent's perspective. So this week, I have a very special guest with me who has dealt firsthand with receiving a prenatal diagnosis. And that is Dr. Lauren Kozad. Lauren Kozad is an associate professor of special education at Penn State University. She is the mother of two children, Dexter, age four, and Navy, age two, who was born with a congenital diaphragmatic hernia. Lauren was a former elementary and special education teacher prior to earning her PhD. She loves cooking, reading, binge watching, and learning about ways to improve the world through education. Dr. Kozad, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure to be with you this morning. What do you like to binge watch? Right now I'm binge watching Outlander. Um, Outlander. I was, I was, I just finished Schitt's Creek and I was really like having a, a TV hangover after that one because it had such a sweet ending. Like I just couldn't move on. So it took, I had to take a little break from TV for a little while. So, but we're back. Yeah. Well, good, good. It's always good to binge watch things. When I'm off, I try to binge watch as much as I can to catch up. I hardly ever watch any cable at all on Hulu or Netflix or Amazon Prime all the time. Um, So I completely get binge watching and I usually like to binge watch with popcorn and a glass of wine. Well, my child lets me. Yes, they're very demanding. Let's talk about Navy and your experience um, with um, the diagnosis. When did you learn about um, the diagnosis of the congenital diaphragmatic hernia? So we went into our 20-week anatomy scan. Uh, I use a a general OB practice here uh, in State College, and we went through the whole scan. Um, The ultrasound tech really wasn't saying much to us. I don't think they usually do. And afterwards, we were to meet with the OB, and she came in, and she's like, well, everything looks great. How are you feeling? And, you know, we said normal pregnancy things. Then she said, I do need to mention something. We're a little concerned. Uh, We think that there's a slight chance for uh, congenital diaphragmatic hernia. I'd never heard of that before. My husband had never heard of that before. She was like, you know, we, we can't 
really check it here. We don't have uh, maternal fetal medicine. So they referred me to a hospital two hours away. And she kind of looked at me and, and I said, well, what is that? You know, I had no, never heard of it. And she's like, well, it's something that happens in utero and the organs kind of shift around and you're, you're probably not going to be able to deliver here, but we're not positive that's what it is. So I'm going to send you home and I don't want you to Google anything. I want you to wait until your next appointment and they can talk things through with you. I, I kind of looked at her and she's like, yeah, it, we've had some great cases uh, come through here. And, and one little guy went home after a few weeks and he's doing great. And so I thought, okay, it can't be that bad, right? She said he he was in the hospital for a few weeks and um, not to be too concerned. But the first thing I did when I got to the parking lot was cry. And then the second thing I did was Google um, exactly what she told me not to do. And the general survival rate for CDH is 50%. And I just was not expecting, you know, maybe like an extra finger or something that wasn't, you know, didn't lead to death. But 50% was a little staggering when I when I saw that. So we had our appointment scheduled with the maternal fetal medicine doctor in two weeks. And that's a really long time to wait. Long time to wait. Oh, my God. Uh, when you don't know what the actual diagnosis is. So I kind of took it into my own hands and started looking for other maternal fetal medicine practices. Um, we're in central Pennsylvania, so our kind of choices are to go towards Philly or towards Pittsburgh. And the appointment they'd made was actually in Hershey, which is somewhere between State College and Philly. But uh, we're from Pittsburgh, and so we thought, I'm going to try to get a consult in Pittsburgh, and they got me in a lot quicker. I thought, great, we'll head that direction. And we went in for our maternal fetal medicine visit, and it was a lot of doom and gloom. Um, and the we had like a high-level high ultrasound, and then the OB came in. Uh, with the maternal fetal medicine, there were two doctors, and he said, um, it is CDH. That's definitely the diagnosis, uh, and the liver is up, which uh, in CDH terms is is generally a negative. Uh, if the liver's up, it means it's taking up a lot more space in that cavity, uh, and outcomes tend to be lower uh, for liver up. And so we just sat there, and he said, we're going to schedule an appointment with you in an hour with our genetic counselor to talk through your options. And I really didn't think much of that. And so we sat down with a genetic counselor and she said, you know, it's still pretty early in your pregnancy. We still can offer termination. Uh, that's absolutely something that you can consider. And she also talked to us about uh, palliative care. That was her main uh, thing was if you're, as long as your family's close, you know, we can keep the baby warm and, and on palliative care so that everyone can meet the baby after they're born. And, you know, we'll do our very best to take care of you and the baby. But it really didn't feel optimistic at all. I mean, they really weren't saying anything positive about outcomes or, you know, it could be this or could be that. It was it was a lot of sadness. And, and this I, is before. Did you get an MRI at any time, Lauren? No, we hadn't even had an MRI yet. No. OK, wow. I'm surprised that the genetic counselor actually did this type of counseling. I'm, um, I'm very yeah. surprised. We were surprised, too. So uh, we left that appointment not feeling great, and I decided I think I need to look up an expert in CDH, right? I'm not just going to go to any old maternal fetal medicine. I need to know someone who has experience with this. And so we started looking in CHOP, Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, is ranked as one of the top hospitals in the nation. They see 50 to 70 cases at least of CDH a year and have a whole clinic devoted to helping CDH babies. And so we scheduled another consult there the following week. 
and went up there. We had another ultrasound, then we had an MRI, and we also had a fetal echocardiogram. And uh, then we sat down with the genetic counselor, the surgeon, uh, a maternal fetal medicine, and an OB. So we had a big team there and a social worker who really laid out her diagnosis for us and said they drew a diagram. This is what her cavity looks like. Uh, these are things we can expect. They were pretty realistic with us, so they gave us her LHR, which is the lung-to-head ratio, which is a common term they use to, to talk about CDH and just what um, size you know the body is and how it's developing. And so hers was in the moderate to severe category. So they do offer something called the FIDO procedure, where they will go in and put a balloon in the baby while you're pregnant to help their lungs develop. But unfortunately, Navy's case was a little bit too positive, um, which should have been a good thing. But we were a little like, oh, we were hoping to get that procedure, hoping that it would really help her grow. But they said, you know, we feel pretty confident. They gave us an 85% survival rate, which we felt so much better with than the previous conversations we'd had with anyone. So that was kind of like how we went about our diagnosis and it was a lot, but I think my biggest takeaway is that you have to be your child's advocate and you have to think about not just settling for someone saying, you know, you should consider termination because if we wouldn't have sought out a second opinion, we would have thought that those, you know, the counselor and the doctors know best because we're you're so likely to trust someone, you know, who went to school for that and has that medical background. And so you think, well, they must know it's not going to be good. And I think that's not the case at all. And especially with CDH, I think a lot of that 50% is because either cases are undiagnosed um, at birth or uh, someone delivers at a hospital that's just not capable of handling what a baby needs when they're born with this condition. I am. So for our listeners, so a CDH or congenital diaphragmatic hernia is when um, you have the diaphragm that's separating the thorax or the chest where the heart and the lungs lie from the abdomen, which is where like the stomach, the um, intestines, the liver, um, and all the organs that then connect to the pelvis lie. And so if you have a congenital diaphragmatic hernia, there's like a break in the diaphragm, okay? So that means that stuff that's in the abdomen can now get into the chest. So if you have a left-sided congenital diaphragmatic hernia, if you think about what's on the left, um, there's not really much on the left except for the bowel, meaning in the abdomen free-floating. Of course, you have, you know, kidneys and the spleen, but that's like in the retroperitoneal space. That's like in the, in the cavity, like on the backside, so it can't get up. But you um, can have bowel that protrudes through the chest and that sort of pushes the the heart over to the right side. On the right side, you have the liver there. The liver takes up much of the right side of the abdomen, and so... If you have a right-sided hernia, then you can have a wedge of the liver up. And the reason that um, a right-sided CDH is a little bit more risky than the left-sided CDH is because bowel is compressible, right? And it, you can even slide back and forth if you have a hernia on the left side. But the right side, I mean, the liver is solid. So wherever there's solid liver, that's a place that the lungs don't develop. So it really depends on the degree of liver up. So what Lauren is talking about, like a lung um, lung to head ratio is something that we look at and we do an MRI and we say, hey, um, how much of the lung volume do we have left, basically, um, compared to your head circumference? So that uh, number, we use a cutoff of 1.6 usually, but, but that number tells us how severe uh, of, of lung uh, volume 
um, that's diminished is basically. So it tells us how much lung has actually developed or will develop over the course of time. And because you have to have lungs to actually be able to breathe. And whenever you have stuff that's not supposed to be in the chest, in the chest, it sort of pushes everything else out of the way. So yeah, the heart is on the left side, mainly sort of in the middle left. And if you have um, liver that's up on the right, it's still pushing the heart further over to the left and it's pushing everything else over, over further. So if something's compressed, it can't develop. So that's why there's even a chance of non-survival with babies that have congenital diaphragmatic hernia. I personally never quoted anybody a 50-50 chance of survival, though, um, which is why I'm surprised that the geneticists, I don't know where you went, Lauren. I'm not saying your OB was bad. I'm not saying that. But as somebody that has counseled people frequently and diagnosed these type of things frequently, it's, um, to me, uh, beyond inappropriate that the genetic counselor is having the conversation with you as opposed to the maternal fetal medicine specialist or um, at least the pediatric surgeons that are going to be doing the surgery afterwards. Um, usually CHOP is one that I've referred to, um, but even when CHOP has told me like very dismal things about patients that I've sent there, um, there's another place that like prides themselves. They only do congenital diaphragmatic hernias in Florida that I've sent people to and they've had um, much better diagnosis. Now they've done a lot of things that are very experimental, but my thing is if CHOP gives you a bad, a bad dismal diagnosis, like, Hey, like, let's go hard or go home. Let's send you somewhere that's doing some trials on this. And so I've sent people literally from CHOP to, um, to, uh, Florida, um, to an institution that, that prides themselves on only doing congenital diaphragmatic hernias and shaking your head. I see you. You probably know this institution as well. Um, because you're right. There are some people that can handle the diagnosis and some people that can't. And as specialists, as MFMs, we're there to diagnose and monitor, you know, that's not something we usually treat, um, you know, without a fetal surgeon. And so your fetal surgeons are going to be the people that are doing the surgeries afterwards. So if you, if you don't have a fetal surgeon that is experienced with it, um, if you don't have somebody that has a lot of data, you should go somewhere that has more data and that has better outcomes. So I definitely agree that um, getting a second diagnosis was, or a second opinion was the right thing to do. But Lauren, you did something that I tell people not to do either, and that's Google. It's so hard not to. It's so hard not to. I do have to say, after I Googled, <clears throat> I did join some parent support groups online, and, and they have been both uh, a blessing and a curse uh, in many capacities. Mm -hmm. But um, getting on those parent support groups and seeing how many hopeful stories parents had made even more of a difference for me than Google. Uh, and I think I went to Google just to figure out what it was. I mean, my he really didn't explain what it was. So I really was kind of clueless. I needed a little bit of background about it. Um, but the parent support groups gave me a lot of hope. And I still am kind of involved in some of them because I, I think parents need hope. Uh, even if the outcome doesn't turn out the way you want it to or the way you think it's going to, uh, you need hope. And hearing positive stories from other families uh, really made such a difference for me uh, early on and before we even kind of settled on where we were going to wind up. And, and I, and I agree with that. I think that there's, there's definitely good in support groups, but I always tell people to take them with a grain of salt, especially if you're on a Facebook support group, because you don't know everybody's whole story. Right. And so if somebody had a really bad prognosis, I'm like, well, you don't know if that baby has something genetic, going on or something else going on that has nothing to do with your baby. So um, if you're listening and you're going through something similar, 
realize that everybody's baby is not just like your baby. So they're going to tell you stories, but the situation could be a little different for you. Um, so just take the information with a grain of salt, ask more questions if you need to, um, especially if somebody had like a horrible experience, you know, nine times out of 10, it's not, you, you don't just have a congenital diaphragmatic hernia. You can have a heart defect that goes along with that. I mean, there's a lot of things that can go along with diagnosis dealing with the bowel. So just make sure you're asking the questions appropriately and don't think doom and gloom automatically if somebody has a, a poor um, outcome. So Lauren, so you, you got your ultrasound at around 20-ish weeks. When did you get your MRI? I was 22 weeks when I had the MRI. Okay. Um, and did that give you more information or more clarity about the diagnosis or did they no. already have the diagnosis? No. Well, they were, they took the, from our initial consults, they we'd sent the scans. So they've gotten the ultrasound scans, uh, but they wanted to get to do their own. And it really kind of firmed up uh, what organs were up. So Navy had all bowels, stomach, spleen, and a part of her liver. Uh, on the left, she had a left-sided congenital diaphragmatic hernia. So they were able to tell us everything that was up, and they drew us a little sketch, you know, what it looked like from an aerial view, what it looked like from the front view, uh, so we could kind of see what it looked like. And then they showed us a picture of, you know, what a healthy baby's uh, development looks like. And uh, ours, you know, Navy's was nothing like that. So it was really helpful. The MRI was so helpful for, I think, for the team and for us to know what we were dealing with. I think the tricky part about CDH and why those parent support groups, just like you were saying, can be really difficult is you can be given a really positive prognosis, right? Like there's just a one loop of bowel up, everything looks great. And then the baby's born and something happens, right? And it, it something goes terribly wrong. Uh, vice versa, you can be told, like with our case, we were expecting kind of the worst. Like they prepared us for ECMO, um, which is a very serious system uh, that they use cannulas to attach to the baby and helps both the heart and lung kind of functions as a heart and lung bypass system for the baby. So it's like the, the most serious type of life support they can provide. So we were prepared when Navy was born, she was going to go on ECMO right away. They told us it, it's, you know, her case is pretty severe. We think that's going to happen and she didn't need it. And so you really don't know, um, and they said that all along, we can tell you all these things now at all of your, so I had follow-ups every four weeks uh, with CHOP. Another ultrasound, they checked the, the LHR again, um, and then they started doing the five-point assessment. You know, is she making breathing motions? Is she moving? All of those things. But the, and the LHR changed, and the organs kind of shifted. Like, at one point, they were like, wow, it looks like more of the liver has moved down. Because when the hole is large, you know, the organs can shift. And wow, so they yeah. can't give you you know, we guarantee this is going to happen because they can't and things really can go differently. And so even in those parent support groups or hearing other parents' stories of hope um, or gloom, uh, you have to kind of keep in mind, like, every child is different. And I think kids have their own feistiness uh, that I want to say, like, whether they're in Navy was so feisty from the get-go uh, with all of the actions that she had. She was just bound and determined to get out of that place. So, yeah, it's... Uh, the MRI was really helpful, and, and we loved our MFM. And when I was like, well, you're going to be there for delivery, right? And they were like, no, sorry. You know, we're just here to help guide you through the pregnancy, and then we're going to pass you off. 
I was like a bittersweet goodbye for me because I really, <laughs> really loved working with my MFM in Philadelphia. So I like joke um, if we had any other kids that I would want to deliver there, but you can only deliver there if you have significant health issues. issues so yeah. like, I don't really want that again, but we just loved our experience uh, that we had such amazing, amazing team there uh, that we worked with. That's good to hear that you had a good experience there. I cannot believe that you would have to wait two weeks for the MFM and Hershey. Like usually if an OB calls me and says, Hey, I got this diagnosis. I'm like, can she come today? Or is she coming in the morning? Like it's a very quick turnaround because I'm like, I do not want the patient Googling and people walk in and they Googled all this stuff. And I'm like, okay, now I have to go backwards because you Google stuff and it's not pertaining to your baby. So I'm surprised that I mean, two weeks, it's like a ridiculous amount of time in pregnancy world. It um, really is. And I think that's why I was so quick to Google because I'm like, what am I supposed to do for two weeks to not yeah. know, you know, what's going to happen? So, yeah, that's wow. <laughs> How long did Navy stay in the NICU? So she was born, uh, I was set to be induced on a Monday uh, and I went into labor over the weekend. So she was born on a Saturday uh, and they had told us to expect four plus months in the NICU. That was their original estimate, um, which we weren't stoked about, especially because I had heard cases like when I first went into the appointment, I was like, oh, well, I know a, a local person and they were only in the NICU for 15 days. And the surgeon looked at me and she's like, yeah, that is like the all-star of all all-stars. Like it is, it is unlikely that you're going to be here for 16 days. So we had to kind of adjust our reality. Uh, we had to relocate. We were so grateful for all the support that we had with the social excuse me, social workers and um, everyone helping us find a place to live while we were there. So we were told four months. And after she was born, we were actually only in the NICU for 53 days. So she really rocked it. She did a lot of things on her own, in her on her own pace. Uh, she extubated herself this one day. I was giving her a bath and she started to turn blue. You know, everyone was panicking because she was on a conventional ventilator and they put the CPAP mask on her and they said, we're not She's not ready for CPAP for another two weeks. And we said, oh, you know, okay. And so, but they put that mask on her and her numbers were perfect. And so well, she's good. Graduated that, you know, super fast. And she had a feeding tube and she'd pulled it out from her intestines into her stomach. So she'd been getting full feeds in her stomach for three days before they did a scan to notice that. <laughs> so she just like was so feisty. And they always were like, man, this baby is so feisty. So she had her own agenda, and that's not to say that we didn't have setbacks because we absolutely did, um, but uh, it, it was a humbling experience, I think I, I think of it. I don't think you have any idea what it's like to be a NICU parent until you've lived it, and yeah. I have so many friends, you know, who were so kind and supportive, but it's just a completely different it's just so different, right? You don't get to hold your baby after they're born. I didn't get to hold her for 20 days. And having a, a child before, a healthy baby before then, I knew what it was like to nurse a baby and to skin to skin. And um, so I knew what I was missing. And that was really hard for me. I really feel for parents who it's their first pregnancy because they don't have anything to compare it to, which is both good and bad that you don't know kind of what you're missing out on. Um, but there were so many things, victories, right. That we were able to celebrate. And I made so many friends with the nurses because I was there all day, every day. And 
you know, you know, Navy really wasn't responding to me much. So I spent a lot of time getting to know everyone. And, um, at one point an anesthesiologist was like, are you in the medical field? And I was like, Oh no, why? And they said, you ask so many thoughtful questions and you use all this vocabulary. Like you've lived here your whole life. And I'm like, well, you know, that's my job as her parent and advocate to know, you know, know. what, what do these numbers mean? What does, what do these letters mean? Um, so that I can advocate for, you know, why are, why is she still on such a high dose of this medication or when are we going to move her from this to this? So I think everyone knew me in the NICU because I was very involved uh, in Navy's care. And I, I don't regret that at all. I think that was so important that I knew, you know, what was going on with her on a day-to-day basis. I wish every parent would do that. Like even, um, especially those that have a diagnosis of their baby. Like I tell them like, bring a notebook and write this down. Or today you're going to meet the rest of the team. You're going to meet me and the pediatric surgeon and the cardiologist and the social worker and the nurse navigator, bring a notebook with you and write it down. And I can tell you like a lot of people still don't do that. They do not do that. They just anticipate like, Oh, Dr. Plain, you're going to keep up with all of that. Yeah, I am. But you should know it too, because if somebody asks you a question, if you're out of town and you happen to have preterm contractions, like you need to know what's going on. Or if you go into labor at the, in the middle of the night and I'm not there and this pediatric surgeon isn't there, you need to know to tell the triage nurse, my child has X, Y, and Z, call these doctors. These people need to be around. And there's a lot of people that just are not, I mean, proactive with their own health, to be perfectly honest. And and definitely not with their child. So kudos to you for keeping up with all that. Maybe, maybe that's changed. Maybe instead of education, you'll, you'll go into medicine now. I don't know. We, about we, that. <laughs> we need, we need more people in the medical field. Just saying. True. That's true. I did have a notebook and I carried it with me through her first birthday every single day. Like when those doctors came in on rounds, I wrote down every single number they were talking about. I took notes about her medication. You know, I would say like she had a feed and she spit up five MLs. Like, it was kind of out of control how many notes I took in that notebook. And then when we brought her home and I was trying to wean her off the NG tube, I was like over the top with, with her feeds. And, you know, so I carried that notebook. It was like my lifeline. Like I, I, if I would have lost it, it would have been devastating to me because I had, (laughs) I like had to know all of her numbers at all times. So, but I think it made me feel comfortable. And that's just one thing I do want to mention the hard part about when I was pregnant, it was great because I knew she was safe in my belly And I knew when she was born, I lost control of that, which was kind of tricky for me. But also, there's not a lot of numbers and data and plans that you can come up with, hypothetically, while you're pregnant. Um, And and one thing another parent had said to me is, once she's born, they will be able to have a plan. They can look at numbers. They can look at progress. They can give you statistics because they will be able to collect more data. And so that, as someone, a researcher who looks at data, that made a lot of sense to me that when she was born, okay, now we are getting numbers like her BNP. Now we're able to see what her blood gases look like. Now we're able to get these numbers um, and interpret them to help us come up with a plan. So kind of um, all the unknowns in pregnancy led to knowns, you know, not sure how the outcomes were going to be, but at least we had some numbers and and a little more to go off of once she was born. So as scary as it was for me to to deliver her, I know I was now sharing her with someone else and really entrusting her to a team of people I didn't know very well. Uh, It was helpful that we were able to make a plan after she was born. So how many surgeries did she have to go through? 
She really only had one surgery. Uh, her surgeon, there is some different uh, perspectives on CDH, and I like that you mentioned the other hospital in Florida. They are very well known uh, for handling CDH patients, and we considered relocating, but CHOP was closed. They gave us a good prognosis, so we did not bother moving to Florida, but I know a lot of families uh, do from across the country, though they, Dr. Case takes really great care of his patients down mm-hmm. in Florida. Um, but um, our surgeon, Dr. Hedrick, she likes the baby to be very stable before she does the surgery. So um, she was scheduled for surgery about 10 days after she was born and then started having some issues with her heart, which is very typical, and kind of those ups and downs. And so they had to bump her surgery back a week. But it took 90 minutes for her surgery. They do it cribside at CHOP, which is really neat. So they bring the whole operating room to her little pod in the NICU. So she did not move anywhere. They brought the whole team. I mean, there were like 20-some people in this little tiny space doing her surgery. And so she's got a Gore-Tex patch. They pulled all her organs down. Uh, She had a LAD procedure, which means her small intestines on one side and her large intestines on the other side. But that was really the only – it wasn't even a hiccup. They kind of expected that that was going to happen. And uh, she's got a nice Gore-Tex patch and about a two-inch scar on her torso that we did with massage and things to help that heal up. But uh, that was her only surgery so far. Uh, Hopefully that will be her only one. But uh, I think globally, um, I think they say about 50% of kids with CDH will need another – will re-herniate at some point and will need another procedure to help – either reapply that patch or put a new patch in. Um, some kiddos that have more, less of a hole and a lot of extra muscle flap, they can actually use the baby's muscle to, to cover that hole. Um, maybe didn't have, an, her hole was too big, so she needed a Gore-Tex patch. Um, the patch is supposed to grow with her, so best case scenario, that will be her only procedure for CDH. Uh, worst case, you know, she'll have to have another procedure to, okay. to fix it. And how is she doing now? She's doing amazing. We actually, uh, because I'm in special education, the second we got home, I really pushed for her to get into early intervention uh, for, she was laying still, you know, for two months. And that's really not normal for a baby to be laying like that uh, for that long. So she had uh, an occupational therapist for feeding because she came home on a feeding tube. So we worked really hard to get that feeding tube out. And that was something else I really didn't expect, the, the feeding issues. I thought, oh, we'll have the surgery, it'll fix everything, and then, boom, she'll be like a perfect baby after that. But when you move around all of your digestive organs, that kind of really impacts kiddos. Uh, So I pumped, and I pumped for 18 months, which was, uh, I had a lovely love-hate relationship with my breast pump, but... I did that for 18 months because that was the only thing I felt, especially when she was in the NICU, the only thing I could consistently do for her. That um, is amazing. <laughs> that is amazing. I mean, you deserve an award for pumping for 18 months. Like that is, uh, that's definitely a feat. Definitely. It was. I kind of did get my, I have these earrings on. They're um, made from my last pump of breast milk. Uh, they have little like gold specks in them. They were really special. It was a splurge I gave myself uh, for, for having maintained pumping that long. But, um, oh, wow. That's so, amazing. Yeah. They make all this beautiful breast milk. And I think, because I'm a professor and I work with college students, like I think if I told them, oh, my earrings are made of breast milk, they would like keel over and die. But you really wouldn't <laughs> know unless, unless I told you. But I wanted something special to kind of commemorate all of that time I spent. Uh, she had occupational therapy. We got her off the feeding tube. 
after five months. So that was a lot of hard work on my part. And I'm very anxious and a numbers person. So lots of juggling. She did lose some weight. We got her back up. Uh, she's petite. She's only in the third percentile. I think she's going to just linger there her whole life, which is, is a okay. And well, then, well, how tall are you, Dr. Kozad? I mean, you don't, look... I'm five three and my husband's five eight. So we're not tall people. Yeah. Some of that's genetics. <laughs> yeah. I think it is. I think it is. So then she did start getting speech services. Um, I think in part because she had that feeding tube in her throat for five months and yeah. really didn't babble. She really didn't. She was a happy baby, but she wasn't talking because I can't imagine how uncomfortable that would be. Yeah. Uh, that tube down your throat. So we started speech a little bit before her first birthday. And actually this last week, she just um, graduated from early intervention because she's above average in all categories. So oh, that's great. So it's, it's really kind of perfect timing that we're, we're meeting today because yeah, she graduated from early intervention. So she's doing amazing talks all the time and lots of attitude. I don't know if that's a girl thing or a second child thing, but wow. She gets that from you, probably. Uh, I think so. I don't know. <laughs> we'll um, we'll take it, considering where she starts. I also think she kind of like likes to spite me because I want her to do well, you know, in life in general. Like she just does things when she's ready, and uh, not when I want her to. So we kind of battle a little bit about things like that. But yeah, she's doing amazingly. She hasn't been sick really she had to get ear tubes in um which was completely unrelated to her cdh but we have follow-up appointments with chop with our team at chop and they're still amazed like she's never been to the er she's never had a respiratory infection and she goes to daycare because i work full-time and you know as a working mom that was a really hard decision for me to make but the teacher in me wanted her to get that socialization and, and opportunity yeah. to be with other kids and so she goes to daycare. She gets all the germs. You know, she gave me her cold this week. So I'm very unappreciative of that, but that's, that's love. <laughs> um, so yeah, she's doing amazing. And, and I'm so grateful for all of the support we had to get us to this point because it has absolutely been a team effort. Oh, that's so awesome. Thank you so much for sharing that. That is awesome. And we want updates and we want to see how she's doing as she grows. That's awesome. So um, what advice would you give to expecting mothers who have to deal with a similar situa situation and may receive a prenatal diagnosis? I probably have a lot of advice, but I think the, one of the first things I would say is to try not to compare, which is so much easier said than done, but it's so hard when you are told things are not going to go maybe the way you had in your mind, right? Um, you're not going to get to dress your baby up right away. You're They're not going to get to meet their sibling and get all these cute pictures or you're just not really sure what the future is going to hold, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't celebrate and be happy. Um, especially if this is your first child, like have your baby shower, be happy, get your maternity photos. Don't let this stop you um, from thinking that your baby's going to gonna have a great life because you just don't know. And I think my second piece of advice is to just do your research and ask your questions I went in with so many questions. I'm surprised that CHOP didn't say, like, we are not taking you on as a patient because you <laughs> asked the most questions ever. Because every time I came back, I would have, like, a laundry list of 45 new questions that I came up with. But getting answers really helped me feel better. And I, especially because I'm a teacher, I always, there's no such thing as a stupid question. And it is okay to ask if you're uncertain about something. It really just helped me feel more confident in the team that was caring for her in my understanding of things. 
And you should just seek out answers until you feel comfortable. If you're not happy with the statistics they give you for survival, go somewhere else. Relocating is not ideal, uh, but your baby at the end of the day is what's most important. Uh, whether you're in Florida or California or, or Philadelphia, move to where you need to be to get the support that you need. And I would really tell you to, to, to seek out multiple opinions if you're not really hearing things that are making you feel comfortable. Um, thank you for that advice. Um, that is very good advice. And I will say it's usually the patients with the 21 questions that we actually like as physicians because we know that you at least get it. You know, it's people that I tell hey, your baby has a very complicated heart defect and this is what we're going to need to do. And they have no questions. Like those are the patients that I worry about. Like, like you sure you don't have any questions? Like, and then I'm trying to like ask questions for them. Like, okay, let me re-explain X, Y, and Z. So it's always better to come in with questions. I think that some people may think, oh, that may be burdensome for a physician. Like, but that's what we're there for. Like we're there to make sure you have a clear understanding of what's going on with you and your baby. So that is very good advice um, to ask your questions. Like, this is what we're here for. Ask them. And honestly, we get very concerned when you when you don't ask any questions. That's sort of like, okay, maybe they just don't understand. So that's great advice. So now um, at this point in the show, Lauren, we usually have these cases. But for you, because you're not in the medical field, we actually have questions. And um, we've gotten quite a bit of questions in the last couple of weeks that I've collected. And so our medical intern will read three questions um, that our listeners have asked in the past. The first one is, hi, I'm currently 19 weeks pregnant with my second child. I was told that my child has a GI problem that includes an omphalocele where the bowel is outside of the body, as well as a heart defect called tetralogy of fellow. I was encouraged to get genetic testing and told that depending on the results, this could drastically change the prognosis of my baby. Do you recommend genetic testing on babies with bowel defects? And have you had patients with similar situations? So um, this is, um, so an omphalocele is when you have um, basically a, um, a defect in the abdominal wall or the belly um, of the baby where the bowel is outside of the, the abdomen and it's covered with a thin layer. Um, that is different than a gastroschisis, which is when you have a defect in the abdomen and the bowel is sort of free floating in the fluid um, and not covered by anything. And phallocele with a heart defect, so tetralogy fallot is a heart defect where there's a little hole in the heart, um, one of the valves is downwardly displaced, um, and they can also have like an over overriding aorta or the big vessel that covers, uh, that takes blood from the left side of the heart to the rest of the body actually takes blood from the left and the right side. So it can carry deoxygenated blood to the rest of the body. So that is what a tetralogy of flow is. An omphalocele with a heart defect does have a high risk of having a genetic malformation. So omphalocele by itself usually has a 30% risk that there's some underlying genetic problem. Um, mixing that with a heart defect moves that up to about 40 to 50%. So, um, so yes, if you have a baby that has uh, an omphalocele plus a heart defect, um, honestly, or any GI issue, I would recommend that genetic testing is done because you don't want to go through the pregnancy thinking that your baby is genetically normal and all of a sudden you find out your baby has trisomy 18, which can be very detrimental. It has a very low life expectancy 
Um, and some of those babies are not candidates, depending on the genetic defect, are not candidates for surgical intervention. So you don't want to go through, you know, the pregnancy thinking that your baby's going to have surgical repair of something, and then your baby, you know, needs genetic testing before it can get done, and you find out that there's a genetic problem and, and it's not treatable. Um, I, Lori, I don't know what your experience was with genetic testing itself. Did you get genetic testing? So I did not initially, and part of that is because I have a family history of false reads with older genetic screenings, um, and my OB's office was a little outdated. They didn't offer um, some of the newer genetic screenings. They mostly only offered, um, I can't even think of the name, they just started offering the blood screening at 13 weeks after okay. my pregnancy. So um, they're a little outdated. And because I'm in special education, my husband and I had always been of the mindset, no diagnosis we get was going to change the way we handled the pregnancy. And so we did not opt for genetic screening with either one of our kiddos. Uh, but once we got Navy's diagnosis, we did do genetic screening at that point because they did recommend it will be helpful for us, you know, given she's got other medical needs, if we know more about if there's any genetic abnormalities. And so we did do a screening. Uh, and at, at first, the first hospital we consulted wanted us to do an amnio right away. And I was not interested in doing an amnio until we'd had an initial screening that told us there was something to be concerned about. And then we would go the amnio route um, if needed. But I think it's never going, what our team, medical team said, having more information is never going to hurt us in coming up with the plan of treatment. So more information we have, the better. Um, I think to... Just looking at how I handled my pregnancy, it's really hard to sit, tell someone bad news, right? Like from weeks 20 to delivery of Navy, I was a completely different person. Um, so anxious. I had to, I started seeing a therapist. Just my mental health was not, you know, I thought it's because I ate a hot dog one time. It's because, you know, I did this activity or I had a sip of my husband's wine. You know, that's what caused it. And those, that's absolutely not true, but, you know, as a parent, you're kind of digging for, well, what was the cause of this and what did I do differently? And then when you get the diagnosis, you, you perseverate on what is their life going to look like? What's going to happen? What if I lose the baby? How am I going to explain that to my two-year-old? We're not bringing your baby home, you know, all of these questions. And so having that information, I think it taints a little bit of the enjoyment of your pregnancy. So I think that's why I was hesitant to get it at first, but once we knew there was a concern we handled it, you know, the best we could. And I think that those genetic screenings can really be beneficial just to let your team know, here's what to expect. Uh, and you as well, right? What could come when the baby was born. Thank you for sharing that because um, there are people that do get a lot of false um, positive genetic screenings. And whether that be the NIPT, which is the cell-free DNA test you're talking about that your OB just started offering, um, or uh, some people get quad screens. So if you're younger than age 35, you may get a quad screen, which is just four hormones that, um, based on whether they're up or down, it tells you if you have an increased risk of Down syndrome or trisomy 18, which is Edwards syndrome, or an open neurotube defect, which is like spina bifida, so where the spine is exposed to the amniotic fluid. So that quad screen is only about 84% sensitive for diagnosing those three things that I just mentioned. And it does have, if it's positive, you'll get sent to somebody like me who's an MFM that'll look and see if there's any findings that's consistent with those findings. And then they'll offer you um, a cell-free DNA or an NIPT or non-invasive prenatal test, which is a blood test um, to screen for those things. Or they'll talk to you about a genetic amniocentesis, 
if it's something that um, cannot be picked up on a serum screen. So the, the cell-free DNA can pick up um, Down syndrome with about 99% certainty. It can pick up trisomy 18 with about 97.9% certainty. And then it can pick up trisomy 13 with about 91.9% certainty. Um, and then it gives you this, the gender. So it can pick up Turner syndrome um, as well. Um, and then there's an extended panel that can pick up uh, about seven other things, but the sensitivity of those is super low. It's like 40 to 50% sensitive for, for those other things. And so it's not really intended to be used for that. So if you have something that seems to be a syndrome, meaning not just like an extra chromosome, um, then your OB or MFM would talk to you about doing a genetic amniocentesis where we insert a needle into the uterus, withdraw fluid around the baby, and then send that off for the baby's genetic makeup. Obviously, that is your gold standard test, right? Because it's going to screen you for everything. Um, and it's going to do a microarray. The only thing it won't pick up is if you have a single gene deletion. It won't pick up all of those if you have like genes that are there, but they're switched. So, so like sickle cell anemia, it may not pick up that unless you specifically do a sickle cell panel because it's telling you all the genes are there. They're just the guanine, the valine are just switched. Um, so it won't pick up that um, unless you have specific panels. But for the most part, amniocentesis is the gold standard to pick up everything. For somebody that has an amphalocele, I really would urge you to get a genetic screen. And, and that's because that is not like a CDH. That's not, doesn't have an increased risk of chromosome abnormalities. If you had gastroschisis, I would tell you, hey, that doesn't carry a higher risk of a genetic problem because we know that it's rare for a gastroschisis um, defect to be associated with a genetic problem. But um, um, thalassil is different than that. And with a tetralogy of Fallot, meaning you have two major defects, um, I, I wouldn't encourage you to at least do an NIPT because what I would be concerned about is trisomy 18 with an omphalocele and um, a tetralogy of Fallot. And if you didn't want to get anything invasive, then you could wait until after delivery if you wanted to get further testing. But I would definitely recommend at least a blood test to rule out that particular chromosome abnormality because that one does carry a very poor prognosis. And after the baby is born, we can look at a baby and tell if there's trisomy 18. There's just a lot of things we can't see on an ultrasound or MRI in terms of features of that particular um, uh, chromosome abnormality. But we know that 99% of those babies have heart defects. And if you're talking about emphalocele, that does go with trisomy 18. So weigh your options, but I would always encourage people to be prepared. And you don't want to get through the pregnancy and then find out afterwards that your baby is not does not allow surgery because trisomy eighteen babies they you know I gonna operate on at even like a chop or you know Florida they they just won't because even in the experiments that they've tried those babies sometimes don't make it off the operating table so I would definitely encourage you to get at least that initial screen and then if you want to wait on something further that's invasive. Um, you didn't want something invasive during the pregnancy, then they could do testing on the baby after the baby got here. The next one says, my child was diagnosed with a right-sided congenital diaphragmatic hernia last month. I'm now 29 weeks pregnant. I've been told that most of the liver is in the chest. What can I expect following delivery? I think that's a Lauren question. Um, because for me, and I know that your child just had a big left-sided congenital diaphragmatic hernia with a small wedge of liver up. Is that right? 
Yep. So um, with the right side, you know, I am anticipating that you probably have a larger amount of liver up than you did, Dr. Kozad. So that could mean that there's less lung volume there. And so it just depends on how much liver is actually up. Um, from a medical perspective, you can expect that you're going to get serial ultrasounds. You're going to get an MRI, at least two, um, during the pregnancy. And you, depending on if there's any compromise or shift in the trachea, sometimes the liver can shift things over and cause airway obstruction. And so if there's airway obstruction, then you you could expect an exit procedure where they have to intubate the baby first and then deliver the baby um, to get an airway. If there's not, which most CDHs don't have, then you would expect, you know, I would expect that you could still deliver vaginally and your baby would have to spend some time in the NICU um, depending on, and it really depends on how big the baby is and how far along you are when you deliver and things like that as to how long in the NICU. Um, Lauren, do you want to expound on any of that? Yeah, so I think from my general experience, doctors or, or surgeons have left-sided is more predictable and right-sided is, is the more of a toss-up because it really depends on how much of the liver has impacted the lung development. Where I delivered, I delivered in a special delivery unit, it was called, and so we, we toured it. You know, we knew what to expect. I had a vaginal birth. I had the same with my son. So we were still able to do, you know, all of my birth plan, you know, all of those things. Um, but as soon as Navy was born, my husband cut the cord very quickly. I did not hold her um, or touch her, which was tough, but I wanted her to survive. And so what they did was they handed her through a window. It's a physical window in the delivery room into a stabilization room. And immediately they intubated her. Uh, within two minutes of her being born, she was completely intubated. So they had her on that respiratory support right away. They were checking, you know, her blood levels and, and getting her comfortable. Um, and then something which we knew was coming, they gave her a paralytic. So she was paralyzed. You know, we really didn't see her open her eyes for almost three days because they wanted to keep her very still. Uh, when they first started to intubate her, she was so feisty. They don't usually go straight to that paralytic. Uh, but she would not stop fighting them for the intubation. So, I mean, she came out feisty, and, and that never went away. But they intubated her, and then they moved her um, two floors down to the NICU, and we were able to visit her a few hours after she was born. We got to touch her. And in the first few weeks or, or days, moments of a CDH baby, they can be very sensitive uh, to sounds, to light. So her NICU room was dark. She had on these little earmuffs that kept her from hearing loud noises because other babies, you know, monitors would beep and things, and then that would kind of cause her stats to get a little off. So we weren't able to do much as far as touching her. We really just wanted to get her stable, stable enough that she could have her repair surgery. So um, that's kind of what happened in that brief period. And we were kind of clueless, right, about – and they, they usually call that the honeymoon phase right after the baby's born and, and things kind of look great for the first day or two. And then usually by day three is when you start to see the real deal. Um, more issues come up. And, and they told us from the get-go, you know, it's going to be two steps forward and one step back. And it is okay, you know, if we have to do something more invasive or we have to up a medication or something, we want to keep her comfortable. And that was really our goal. So Now, I will say um... – you know, with this right-sided congenital diaphragmatic hernia, I would encourage you to, like, find out how much liver is up. And, and like, Lauren did, like, she took a notebook, she wrote down numbers, she followed this. Like, find out exactly 
how much lung volume is left? Like, how, what is the prognosis? Don't be afraid to ask these questions to your care team because by now you're 29 weeks, you should have a care team. Like you should know who your surgeons are. You should know who's delivering you. You should have an MFM on your team. Ask them these questions because everybody is different, you know, and, and if you have a little wedge of liver up, I mean, that is a completely different story than somebody that has like a big wedge of liver up um, and a completely different prognosis and it, completely different time for intervention. So make sure you're asking these questions and make sure you take notes because you're only 29 weeks. So things can change. Um, depending on how big that defect is, your liver can shift up, it can shift down. Um, it could be what's called an even tration is when you have a wedge of liver that shifts back and forth um, through the hole in the diaphragm. And that may be why you said you found out, I believe, recently, a couple weeks ago, last month, um, instead of on your 20-week scan. Because if it looked normal on your 20-week scan and you went in for a growth scan, at 24, 25 weeks, you know, and now they see a wedge of liver, then it could be an even tration, which means that you have a wedge sliding back and forth, which actually carries a better prognosis than somebody that just has like a wedge of liver up all the time. So just ask that question like, hey, is this a sliding hiatal hernia or is this, you know, um, or sliding diaphragmatic hernia or is the liver, has the liver been up the whole time? how much liver is up, what's the prognosis, and just keep up with those numbers every time you go to the doctor, every single time. Okay, the last one says, Dr. Plenty, I'm 21 weeks and one day pregnant and was told that my child has a small diaphragmatic hernia on the left side as well as a CPAM lesion on the left side seen on a subsequent MRI. I was given the option to terminate the pregnancy. I was told that neither lesion is lethal and that my baby has a high chance of survival. So I'm not sure why this was even discussed. Is this something that's offered to everyone or is this because I have an extreme case? Anytime you're given a, a diagnosis of a structural malformation that could require surgical intervention, you legally, medical legally, somewhere along the line, Somebody has to have documented that they give you the option to terminate. And if you're before 21 weeks and six days, you medical legally, you could be if you weren't given that option and then your baby has surgery or is in the NICU for 50 days and you go bankrupt for some reason and you you can sue your doctor for wrongful birth. Like that's a real thing. I know people that have been sued for wrongful birth. So they have to give you that option, but also tell you that, hey, this is not lethal, but we want, want you to understand that if there's a structural defect, you always do have the option to terminate, even if they have terminations aren't done in that state. Um, they will give you options to terminate in another state, even if the provider doesn't do terminations themselves. So, um, no, I don't think that it's because it's an extreme case, especially if they said that the baby had a high chance of survival. They're probably honestly just going through the motions and, and going through the check boxes and saying, hey, I just have to let you know, you do have the option to terminate. Um, I, I'm saying that, but you can ask, like, basically, are you lying to me? And this is an extreme case. But I would assume that if somebody told you that neither lesion is lethal um, and together they're not lethal, because that may be something you need to clarify, together they're not lethal, um, then um, why are you telling me that I need to turn or I'm giving the option to terminate? You can you can ask, like, why are you giving me the option to terminate if it's a good prognosis? Um, but I would think that just because medical legally somebody has to say, are you going to do you plan to continue the pregnancy or have you ever considered terminating the pregnancy if 
we told you in the future that something's wrong. Because I say that because you're 20 weeks and or 20 weeks, 21 weeks, I forget. Um, 21 weeks now. Let's say the CPAM lesion, or which is a congenital pulmonary adenomatous malformation, is what CPAM stands for. That is like a um, a tumor or cystic lesions in the lung that can grow, right? And so if you have this lesion that's growing at 30 weeks, you know, it could be a lot bigger and you have a, a congenital diaphragmatic hernia also stopping the left side of the lung from growing and it's probably pushing um, everything in the chest over to the opposite side so that can compromise the other side. So, you know, at 20, 21 weeks, it could look a lot different than at 31 weeks. And so the prognosis can change and so if somebody said, hey, if this happens to change, would you have elected to terminate? It's because they can't really talk to you about it at 31 weeks. So you have to understand that the, the prognosis can change. But it is good that they're telling you that this is not lethal at this time. But as a provider, we sort of kind of have to make sure somebody has had that conversation with you. Lauren, I don't know if people, you told me people had that conversation with you. Yeah, I think so much of it is the context, right? And asking that, why are you offering that to me? And I think that's what's really hard is we're so quick to judge and, and listen to exactly what our doctors have to say, which we should. Um, but it's also okay to question that, right? Like, well, why are you, are you just offering that because you're legally required to, or are you offering that because you think this is pretty severe? Uh, and I think, unfortunately, that that happens sometimes to families where they're given just because they're told that's an option, they think that that's a recommendation and they go ahead and consider terminating the pregnancy when the baby really maybe did have a great chance of survival. But as soon as you hear, you know, terminating the pregnancy, they think, well, if they offered it, they must think I should do it. So I'm going to do it. So I think exactly what Dr. Bonnie was like, ask questions, right? Ask why are you saying this or, or can you give me some survival rates, even though, you know, they're not going to, be 100% with what they're saying, at least if they can say, we really think that there's a high chance of survival, we're just offering it because we legally have to. I think that's a totally different conversation than your baby is unlikely to survive after birth. Um, if you'd like to consider terminating, you know, that's absolutely an option that we can provide to you. I think those are two different conversations. And as soon as you hear termination, maybe you tune out, uh, whatever else is said after that. So ask, ask for clarity so that you're comfortable with your decision. And I know I have um, some OBGYN colleagues that follow the podcast. If you're listening, like, make sure to be clear. Like, tell your patients, hey, I'm only telling you this because I legally have to. And right now everything looks good. And so I'm not telling you to terminate. But if something changes, would you be in that ca class of people that would have terminated? Um, and make it clear so that people can know, like, I'm not telling you to terminate. I'm just legally obligated to give you the option because it is confusing if somebody brought up termination all of a sudden. You get a bad you get bad news and then they're like, Oh, but you can terminate. Like that that is that's an awful conversation. And we do need to watch how we're approaching the situation. And uh most of the time I do tell people like, Hey, I have to tell you this. I'm not telling you to terminate because ninety nine percent of the time your baby's gonna be just fine, but I have to legally tell you this. So they can understand, like, this is not my recommendation. And usually when I do recommend something, I will straight tell people, like, hey, this amniocentesis, I, I really recommend that you get this done because you're not going to find the answers you're looking for 
off of just this cell-free DNA test if you want to terminate because somebody's trying to terminate uh, based on an ultrasound, that's not what you should do. You should you should get some definitive testing. If, if termination is anywhere in your mind, you should get definitive testing and not with a blood test, with a genetic amniocentesis. So, Lauren, thanks so much uh, for being on the podcast. You've been amazing today. Thank you so much for sharing your story um, of uh, Navy. And I know that uh, people will be anxious to see Navy, and I'll have to post a picture of both you and Navy on our social media platforms. Um, so if people want to follow your story or hear more about Navy, how can they find you? So I have a blog. It's titled Mrs. Lauren's Life. So you can find me that's, uh, on Blogspot. And then I also post a lot on Instagram. Um, and my Instagram handle is LEC1219. I post lots of little updates about Navy uh, and Dexter. He makes some appearances on there. Um, and just kind of our, our journey through life. So... Thank you so much for having me. It really has been a pleasure talking about this. I think DDH is a lot more common than we think of it as, right? One in every 2,500 babies is born with a congenital diaphragmatic hernia. It's just as common as spina bifida. And I'm, I'm assuming a lot of listeners probably have heard of spina bifida before. I had never heard of CDH before. And I, I kind of take it as my personal mission to educate people on what it is and what it means. And I think it's easily confused with CHD, congenital heart um, defects, yeah, and our D and our H are backwards. So I try to kind of point that out sometimes. But, uh, yeah, just bring attention to this birth defect, right? We really not – there's not the money in the research and the, and the support programs and such as there are in, in other categories. So just bringing that awareness uh, so that if you know of someone who's diagnosed with CDH, you can say, wow, I've heard stories of hope or, you know, there are great things that can come out of your pregnancy. So uh, trying to spin that into a positive. Awesome. Thank you so much for being a patient advocate and an advocate for your daughter and an example of how we should all be with, with our children's health and with our own health. Like write it down, ask questions, um, advocate for yourself. So um, I absolutely appreciate you being on here and we will definitely follow your blog and follow your social media because we want to see all the updates. And of course, we can't leave Dexter out. I mean, Dexter is like big bro extraordinaire. So we definitely can't leave him out. So we, we will look forward to his cameos as well. So thanks everyone for listening. And um, if you are 35 years old and think about getting pregnant, remember I'll be launching the threat, the 35 plus membership club next month. Um, that way you can get your preconception counseling and your pregnancy planning one-on-one with me virtually. You can also get to meet other planning moms to discuss your experiences and learn more about other options with my featured guest speakers. So stay tuned for that. Um, also, if you are pre um, following Pregnancy Pearls on social media, you know that I'm the co-author uh, for Chronicles of Women in White Coats, Volume 3. Um, in the book, I'll share my journey uh, with my own personal high-risk pregnancy, and I'd love for you to support it by purchasing the book. And make sure to let me know about what you think after you read it. So if you or someone you know uh, has a pregnancy complication or unique pregnancy situation, let me know about it. Email me at pregnancypearls at gmail.com to hear your topic or case discussed on one of our podcast episodes. Also, remember to follow me on Instagram at pregnancy underscore pearls and Facebook at pregnancy pearls. Don't forget to subscribe to the YouTube channel, which is youtube.com forward slash pregnancy pearls with Dr. Plenty for more quick talks about pregnancy complications. In closing, remember to advocate for yourself. 
You are your biggest advocate and no one knows what's going on with your body except for you. Thanks for listening. Pregnancy Pearls is hosted by Dr. Nicole Lee Plenty. Produced by Nicole Plenty and Janine Brunson Johnson. Executive producer Ken Johnson. Find Pregnancy Pearls on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Please subscribe and rate. The content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice for diagnosis or treatment of individual medical conditions. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with specific questions regarding a medical condition. Pregnancy Pearls is a mean old lion media production. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun? Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.